Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Leroy Lowe and Michael Lerner. Leroy Lowe is the president and co-founder of the nonprofit organization Getting to Know Cancer. Leroy Lowe, welcome to the New School. Oh, thank you, Michael. Leroy, you are uh, the uh, founder of Getting to Know Cancer, a um, project based in uh, uh, Canada, uh, and of the Halifax Project of Getting to Know Cancer, which uh, is doing extraordinarily interesting work, both on looking at the role of chemicals in uh, contributing to cancer causation, and also looking at alternatives uh, to uh, conventional cancer therapies that might uh, be gentler and might be effective in new ways. Is that a fair summary? Would you put it in different words? Um, no, I think that's a fair summary. The only, the only slight variation, I would say, is that it's on the therapeutic side, we've really been looking at... Um, alternative methods that might be complementary to existing therapies. Right. So the work we've done, I wouldn't call it alternative approaches to therapy, but rather new approaches that could complement existing therapies uh, that are already in development. Right. That's that's an important correction. Now, um, please give us a little bit of your background before you started getting to know cancer. What what did you do professionally before you got involved in getting to know cancer? Um, well, I did a diploma in engineering and um, a Bachelor of Science undergraduate degree uh, right out of uh, high school, I guess. I joined the Air Force um, as a pilot trainee, and I went through to uh, pilot training through to the JET program. About halfway through the JET program, I failed some flying tests and uh, got reclassified as an aerospace engineer uh, in line, I guess, with my uh, engineering background. I worked as an aerospace engineer and a project manager for a number of years in the in the Air Force. Um, I worked at uh, National Defense Headquarters in, in Ottawa and in Canada and worked on equipment for aircraft, and I worked with scientists in research and development um, projects, uh, taking scientific concepts and bringing them through to um, equipment that could be used to track Soviet nuclear submarines. Um, So a lot of underwater acoustics work and sort of um, pre-Berlin Wall, uh, (laughs) Cold War sort of uh, work that was going on. And uh, then I left and went and worked in uh, the field of oceanography. I was in sales, marketing, and business development for an engineering uh, and electronics company that was selling uh, oceanographic equipment to scientists and researchers uh, around the globe. Um, I traveled probably 100 days a year uh, to more than 20 countries and managed uh, a bunch of agents and distributors that primarily... uh, sold ocean monitoring equipment for temperatures and various variables related to climate change um, to navies and oceanographic institutions. And um, 
I think in both of those roles, I was working with scientists. So I think, you know, that's very much consistent with where I ended up, although a fairly uh, unrelated route. Um, and I left the oceanographic business um, to come back to my roots, which are in Nova Scotia in Canada. And I started, um, I, I took a job, uh, a faculty position um, at a community college teaching international business because of my background traveling around the world in business. And in subsequent years, probably for more than a decade, I worked uh, for a software company uh, part-time uh, doing business development work for the in the aerospace sector uh, while I was uh, teaching international business. And it was somewhere along there um, at, during my time in in my role teaching international business that I got involved in cancer research, um, incidentally and out of curiosity at first, and uh, much more seriously as as time went on. But that's the that's the sort of mm-hmm. background is uh, very not 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 a very straight line, but that's, <laughs> that's right. the background. Well, the reason I ask is that uh, I have had the pleasure of working with you, uh, with our colleague Ken Cook at Environmental Working Group and uh, Pete Myers, uh, uh, another colleague in Environmental Health Sciences and others, uh, as uh, we came to understand the importance of your work on uh, exploring the role of partial carcinogens in carcinogenesis, which we'll come to, and then in um, helping put together a workshop at the National Institutes of Environmental Health Sciences on your work. And what was really striking, uh, the workshop at the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences uh, was chaired by Linda Birnbaum, the head of the institute, and it included Margaret Kripke, who was a panelist on the President's Cancer Panel on Cancer and the Environment. And uh, here you were presenting this work in front of a world-class group of experts in the field. And one of our colleagues, a very knowledgeable person, leaned over to me and said, I can't believe how much he knows about this. And the reason I say that is that um, I, I, I told you jokingly that you were what we call an autodidact, and you said you had to look it up to know what that (laughs) meant. But the point is that an autodidact is a self-taught person. And um, there's another word uh, that might be applied to you in certain respects, was polymath, which is someone who is uh, uh, able in a variety of different fields. Uh, You didn't mention your work in trade, for example. uh, You have... uh, you know, uh, a, a tremendous background in, in uh, trade matters and have taught in that area. And uh, you actually sent me, at my request, I said, you know, what are your areas of interest? And you sent me a photograph of your bookshelf. And, you know, it was wonderfully diverse. And, in fact, I, you know, there are many shared volumes on our, our bookshelves. So I, I wanted to do this conversation with you because I... Uh, while I have nowhere near your, you know, level of competence in uh, in partial carcinogens or uh, or complementary approaches to uh, integrative uh, therapies, 
there are many, many shared areas of interest. Um, as you know, I've worked with cancer patients for over 30 years and explored integrative therapies for a long time. So, um, so this conversation really came out of a genuine curiosity about how uh, an Air Force uh, project manager who did, uh, went into oceanography then developed an amateur interest in cancer, which uh, led to an issue of carcinogenesis, a very well-regarded Oxford publication uh, uh, that published a whole set of papers that you had developed with a global team of researchers um, and really made a new contribution to thinking about carcinogens. How did that happen? was what I asked myself. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I would say that it it really was an innocent start. Um, I, uh, when I was growing up in high school, uh, my grandfather died of cancer at home, and I spent a lot of time with him in his final days, uh, probably the last month of his life. And I was 18, and it left a deep impression on me. And his daughter, who was my father's uh, youngest sister, was a play friend of mine from uh, when I was when I was a kid. I used to stay at at my grandfather's place when I was very young. And when I was, you know, seven or eight, she was in her early teens, and she was really she really doubted on me as an aunt, and and really um, was somebody I cherished. And later in life, uh, when I was teaching international trade, she died of cancer, and I started reading about cancer. I really just was curious. I started a family of my own. I was married. I had a son, and I was thinking I really should know more about cancer. And not being one to shy from the science, I went to the peer-reviewed literature and started digging around and was quite frustrated because it um, was very dense and, and a lot of terminology I wasn't familiar with, and I started reading different articles and abstracts of articles and I would go back to university websites and read about different concepts and I kept thinking that it was you know it was just going to take me a bit longer and I would understand what the scientists knew and I I really had no idea how big the field was or how deep uh, the the body of research was or how much I was into and I kept going, and I it, there was something about it. It was intriguing. I was in, I was learning, so it was enjoyable. But I kept thinking, you know, well, you know, next week I'll have this figured out, and I'll at least be up to speed on what the scientists know and they don't know. And and really, it took me eight years of some fairly aggressive um, part-time reading. I would read before breakfast, lunch. Uh, sometimes after supper and always before bed. And I did that for eight years, always thinking that I was just about to have, you know, the light bulb come on. And it really took me way longer than I thought. Anyway, that's the... Now, was that eight years before you started getting to know cancer? Yes. Okay. Yes, exactly. That was just... That was the preparation. That was just me in my spare time trying to make sure that I understood all the concepts. Um, the Hallmarks of Cancer Framework, which was published in 2001, the first Hallmarks of Cancer Framework, or 2000, I'm not sure, sorry, um, 
was had just been out a few years, and it became an interesting paper for me because it helped me orient myself in a very large body of literature. It, it now this is the Weinberg paper. Yes, uh, Hannah Hannah Weinberg published a paper called "The Hallmarks of Cancer" in 2000, I believe, and they staked out six hallmarks of all cancers, or what they believe to be hallmarks of all cancers, and those hallmarks nicely encompassed some large sections of literature, which gave me demarcations, I guess, uh, lines where I could say, oh, that all of that literature relates to this piece, and all of this literature relates to that piece. And I knew uh, this, you know, five or six years into my own self-study, I realized they were missing several very important parts, and I contacted... Um, Douglas Hanahan directly and, and asked him about the pieces that were missing. And he said, oh, we're coming out with a new paper in 2011 and those pieces will be there. And indeed, uh, they added other components and that helped me um, place other parts of the literature and put everything together and into a very coherent sort of model. And let's 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 just pause here for a moment sure. and give listeners a sense of what what the hallmarks are. Yeah, sure. So one hallmark of most cancers is a genetic instability that the cancer cells that are replicating, making copies of themselves, are not stable. They are um, genetically unstable, and so they're not making perfect copies of themselves. Sometimes they're making copies that are slightly different than the original copy. And that genetic instability has been studied by many, many people. You know, what are the causes of the instability? Part of it is due to the hypoxic environment in which the cell finds itself uh, without oxygen uh, because the blood supply is not adequate in the center of a tumor, for example. And there are other various factors that play into that genetic stability. The DNA repair is sometimes re disrupted, so what would norm damage that would normally get repaired is not being repaired. And so that's a hallmark that we see in all cancers. It makes it's in fact it's at the root of what makes most cancers hard to treat because the cop the cells that are immortalized and making copies of themselves are not all identical. So let's give much briefer uh, sort of headlines of the others. Sure, okay. So there's sustained proliferative signaling. Most right. cancer cells are prolifer proliferating um, with abandon. Uh, they are not being impeded. There are tumor suppressors or breaks that would normally stop a cell from uh, proliferation, and th those aren't working. So there's anti-growth signaling that's been disrupted. There is a process called senescence by which um, cells are only supposed to be able to copy themselves a certain number of times before they shut down, and that um, senescence has been bypassed. There's a program cell death, which is supposed to occur if a cell is acting strangely or has damage that shouldn't be repaired. And uh, that's called apoptosis. And there's a resistance to apoptosis in cancer cells that is frequently found because of machinery that's within the cell that's not working properly. Um, there are um, immune system cells which are supposed to prevent 
um, cells from forming tumors. And when a tumor is formed, the immune system is supposed to shut the cell down. That can be T cells, uh, macrophage, uh, natural killer cells. These various cell types um, are supposed to be able to recognize a tumor and shut it down. And, and it is being, and in fact, the cells are supposed to be able to flag that they've that literally uh, put up a physical uh, structure on the surface of the cell to say, hey, I'm in trouble, so that the immune system can uh, attack uh, the tumor and shut it down, and that's not working properly. Um, There is a tendency or propensity for additional blood vessels to form in a process called angiogenesis to feed oxygen to the tumor, which otherwise would be starved, and uh, that process is happening with uh, aggressively. And there's also tissue invasion and metastasis, which allows the cancer to spread. Um, and then the tumor microenvironment itself, where the tumors are formed, has a number of very unique factors. The cells that are around the tumor are cooperating and allowing the tumor to form Ordinarily, the signals given from surrounding tissues should create order in the tumor itself. And there are those who believe that that microenvironment is is absolutely critical and some even say potentially an instigator in cancer. But all of these areas are areas where there has been good agreement on um, the presence of these uh, irregularities in the disease and across most forms of cancer. Um, Inflammation is another factor and a dysregulated uh, metabolic function. Um, The cells are actually starved of oxygen and that creates a special um, environment that can contribute to the genetic instability. So you've got a whole host of factors. We, um, We looked at 11 different areas in the project, but we used the hall- these hallmarks of, of cancer as an organizing framework to ensure that in the work that we did, we were covering as much of the expanse of cancer literature as possible and taking into account all the various um, things that have been shown to be important in the disease. Yeah, and my brother, who is uh, uh, acting chair of oncology at... Uh, Boston University teaches a course uh, using Weinberg's textbook, uh, you know, on precisely this. So that the point is that Weinberg is uh, sort of the, the these criteria, Hanahan and Weinberg's uh, hallmarks, are widely, widely recognized as useful. So what you did, uh, just to put it in my words and ask you to to reflect if I've got it right. You found that this, uh, this, these hallmarks help you organize your thinking, and then you organized this remarkable collaborative research project, uh, which had these two different dimensions. One was to look at partial carcinogens, and the second one was to look at a broad-spectrum integrative design for cancer prevention and therapy. And so you used... Uh, the hallmarks as a way of organizing both. And then, and this is a separate observation, but it seems to me likely that your experience organizing science in the Air Force and after that probably served to some degree as a template 
for how you bring science teams together uh, to look at complex problems in a way that probably many uh, scientific researchers have not had that kind of uh, project management experience in a military and corporate context that you brought to the field. So there are two pieces there. One, have I understood correctly what you did? And secondly, did your background give you tools that perhaps others have not had as frequently? Yeah, I guess I'd like to, I'll take those two uh, pieces separately. Yeah. First, I'd like to talk about the science part, and, and it's absolutely true. You know, fields moving very quickly. I said that in the mid-2000s, um, you know, I was having difficult finding my way in the literature because I was new to the field. I'm sure scientists that have been in the field for many years, you know, understood how all these pieces related to one another. But I really did have a struggle trying to understand the biology. And yet, uh, by the time I was reading the first Anahan and Weinberg paper where they laid out these six areas, just as a, an outsider, I could already see the other areas that hadn't been included. And I'm not saying that's insightful on my part. Rather, I'm just saying these areas of um, agreement in the field of research were becoming obvious to anybody. And when I contacted them and said, you know, what about these other areas? They were like, oh, yes, we, you know, we recognize that and, and we're adding those as well. And it's not that these were all new areas, it's just they were missing from the first paper. And I would say that their second paper in 2011 was a better representation of the breadth of work that was going on in the field. Uh, I, I'll, I'll take as an example, dysregulated metabolism was missing from their first paper, and yet, you know, the work on dysregulated metabolism goes back to the early 20th century. So. Uh, with Warburg's uh, original hypothesis. So it's it's not like this was all new, but I would say Hannah and Weinberg were two of the researchers that did a nice job of summarizing these areas where there's broad agreement um, or where there's considerable agreement on what we now know about those various attributes. Now, I guess what I'm saying is those hallmarks don't... Um, maybe from a terminology standpoint, belonged to Hannah Ann and Weinberg, but they were really just summarizing and producing a nice description of the landscape, which was already there. And I appreciated their work, and I think a lot of people are able to then reference the work to say, you know, we can agree that these things exist because so much work has been done in each of those areas. So that they've had a lot of citations, but that encapsulation has allowed then universities, as you pointed out, you can now go to university in the first year, you know, undergrad, you can take uh, the hallmarks of cancer. And that course is a nice sort of overview or survey course to field. That's all happened in just a decade. The work's been going on for multiple decades, but the sort of big picture has become clear. Um, it's almost like we took cancer and everybody ran off in 10,000 directions and worked on a little piece of it. And now it's time to stand back and say, well, what do we make of all this work that's been done? And now that it's sort of crystallized into a clear big picture, um, it's so easily understood that an undergrad can go and take a first year survey course and, and sort of know what that's about. 
And I would say then it's low-hanging fruit at that point in time because this new model is really a nice way to look at things. And I just took that model and applied it to two areas where I really felt there were challenges that were well-served by applying that new framework or that new way of looking at cancer research. I applied that framework to those two areas that needed needed help. Um, I say they needed help. My reading of the literature was that they're stuck in in a couple of important ways, both in our looking at chemicals in the environment and in how do we address advanced cancers and relapse in therapy. And the Hallmarks of Cancer framework offered something really important. So I agree with your assessment. I hope that maybe explains a little better how I came to think that that was a useful model. Yeah, that's very helpful. So then to the second point, did your background and training in the Air Force and in corporate work help you think about how you were going to do this? Yeah, I think so. I, I didn't, you know, I never spoke in offering my background. I didn't speak that I had done um, uh, a couple of master's degrees and I had uh, started a PhD in management. I abandoned it uh, around the time that I started the work on cancer. And um, I was at the dissertation point, but I guess I had an understanding of uh, academia uh, from my PhD effort at the time. I had an understanding of, you know, uh, publications and how peer-reviewed journals worked and uh, the science, uh, the, the sort of research people were doing. And I brought that together with my project management skills and I in my business background, and I created a model for this project that allowed us to fund it um, organically. I'm going to say organically. We funded it as a grassroots kind of thing. The scientists paid for the work, and I volunteered my time. And I created a model I felt that had the right incentives built in it for everybody. So we, we created the right incentives for the journal that was quite happy to carry something of this scale, the researchers who were quite happy to to get a couple of peer-reviewed publications out of a top journal, and uh, for the leaders who really wanted to be part of something that was groundbreaking, and that really was, you know, emerged from the model that we had laid out at the beginning. So how many many scientists did you bring together for this? There were 350 scientists from 31 countries. And And they all came to Halifax, right? Um, well, not quite. Okay. It's called the Halifax Project. Okay. We, ran, we ran a workshop, and I would say we had about 120 or 130 of the scientists, so about a third of them who came to Halifax. Mm-hmm. And the others participated from afar. Mm-hmm. The leaders all came together, and then a good number of people from all of the teams. But um, it was two different workshops for the two different task forces. Was this and, 2011? And this was in 2011. And the, it were, they were two-day workshops, which I hosted in Halifax. And then uh, we, we worked uh, remotely by email and, uh, you know, collaboration by distance after that. Right. So here's, here's and I want to go further into all of this, but I, I want to keep coming back to how likely was it that uh, an Air Force project manager... <laughs> With uh, who was teaching, you know, trade and thinking about getting a PhD in business management, yeah. <laughs> would create uh, a a global research project uh, that would uh, 
that would introduce a, at least to the field, novel idea that we shouldn't only be concerned with complete carcinogens one by one, but that in fact hundreds, if not thousands of different chemicals might be partial carcinogens that individually and as mixtures met different hallmarks of cancer and therefore collectively might lead to cancer in a way that was not, as far as I know, uh, a significant attribute of the literature on carcinogenesis. It just seems radically unlikely to me, unless you recognize that innovation often comes from the edges of the field and that people are often completely you know, beholden to uh, an existing scientific paradigm and therefore that you were able to do this in some ways precisely because you were at the edge of the field. Yeah, I think um, there's a few things at play here. First of all, um, because I wasn't tied to any particular academic post and I didn't have a, a, a specialty, um, I really did have the liberty to read uh, broadly and I read across all of these areas in, in considerable depth, I might add. And I think that that breadth of reading uh, really prepared me to see a project that was a scope that was much larger than most people in the field would have conceived of because most of them are specialists with fairly narrow focuses or foci. You're listening to a conversation with Leroy Lowe and Michael Lerner. Um, I guess as I spoke to individual scientists, people that had been in the field for a while, I mean, they understood it immediately. But, you know, another thing that really I had, which was an advantage over others, was that most researchers who are very focused just would never have the mandate uh, to produce a project of this breadth. And so when I would talk to a researcher who had been focused on mixtures and who appreciated the cancer of bio, uh, the biology of cancer, in a one-on-one discussion, they would get it immediately. You know, it was intuitive to them that all this mechanistic uh, impacts of chemicals in the environment um, could produce synergies that wouldn't be anticipated using the relatively simplistic models that exist in toxicology for um, uh, mixtures of chemicals or individual chemicals. And uh, using the approaches that we have now, when I talked to these people, they would see it, and it was intuitive to them. And so, uh, but you know, when I when I would say, so what will be done about it, or how do we do something about this? They, their, the inter- the feedback I got from the scientists that I spoke to was supportive. You know, well, I, you know, we, if you're wanting to do something, you know, count me in. But most of them had a fairly narrow focus, and that narrow focus came with their job, which you know gave me an advantage in the sense that I, I think as someone who was an outsider, I could not only see the problem, but I had the flexibility to decide to act on it in a way that wouldn't be normal for most researchers. Um, I uh, had reached out to Theo Colborn because of all the low-dose endocrine disruption work that she had been doing. And, and let's just stop there to sure. say that Theo Colborn, along with Pete Myers and others, were really the founders of the field of endocrine-disrupting chemicals. And for those 
who aren't familiar with the term, the point about endocrine disrupting chemicals is that uh, that it isn't uh, the dose makes the poison in the sense that the higher the dose, the greater the impact. But at extraordinarily low doses, uh, endocrine disrupting chemicals can uh, reprogram the way um, uh, the way uh, the fetus or the uh, young child develops. And this is one of the most important developments in the field of environmental health science over the last two decades has been awareness of the importance of endocrine-disrupting chemicals. So you con consulted with Theo Colburn, who really was is widely recognized as the founder of the field. Yeah, and I, I felt that her work in low-dose exposures, uh, you know, was something that that the, that what I was had in mind these synergies to be produced by low-dose exposures that were mechanistically disruptive of, of aspects of cancer that we now know are important, uh, I felt that by consulting her, I would get some uh, good advice. She uh, referred me to, to Michael Gilbertson, who um, had been doing low-dose work on mercury in the Great Lakes from industrial effluent, that sort of thing, and he had been on the Great Lakes Commission uh, joint an initiative with Canada and the United States to look at um, low-dose chemical exposures in the environment resulting from industrial activity in the Great Lakes region. And she and Michael had worked for decades together on, you know, moving the agenda of the low-dose endocrine disruption uh, forward. Michael really... Um, who was retired when I when I reached out to him? He helped me co-found uh, getting to know cancer. It, you know, we did it together. Um, he was very incredibly supportive and really served as a as a deep uh, resource of wisdom for you know the kind of challenges we might encounter, the resistance we might face, and and how we might organize things. Um, I pretty much bounced everything off of Michael, but um, at the end of the day the concept or the idea to develop a, a huge, you know, number of teams to do this project was really of necessity. You know, we scoped the problem, blank piece of paper, you know, what would it take to, to make the case that this is the way to go? And ultimately we said, well, given the way that people specialize, we're going to need teams in each of these areas. Um, and we're going to need this kind of a structure. And so the large number of people that was involved was really dictated by the size of the problem. And I, like I said, I think part of the, one of the reasons that I was able to, to pull that off is that I really didn't have any restraints. I, we started their organization, you know, with the cost of incorporation, we there was no money invested really. It was just a labor of love, and uh, we worked on it, and we sketched out the problem, and then created the right incentives to bring people together. And uh, we got enough interest from a core group of people that joined the advi uh, an advisory board to then stand up a website and recruit a broader community to the project. And you know, we really had a, a tremendous response. I think we had something like 900 people who had, had said that they were interested in participating in the project initially, and we pared that down, um, searching for leaders initially and then ha carefully selecting uh, people to support the leaders after that and then drawing on the leaders' own, their, their own personal networks of collaborators until we had strong teams in each of the areas that, uh, that we were uh, focused on. 
Well, I want to come back here to the, the qualities that you found in yourself, either you knew or you didn't know. But, you know, I've been involved in nonprofit work for 40 years, and I know a little bit about audacity and vision and their role in nonprofit work. But I have to say that when, when I looked at the simple audacity that you had uh, to have a vision, you know, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring together a global uh, team of teams of scientists to address partial carcinogens and uh, a new approach to chemotherapy. I think I'll do that, right? And, uh, you know, that... And then the, the other piece of it for me is, as you said, you read for eight years and then you started getting to know cancer in 2011. So there's been another four years of reading and engagement. So, you know, it's, uh, it's like... Uh, it's at least 12 years of engagement. Yeah. But what I want to ask specifically, aside from whether you knew that you had the audacity and vision to do this, is do you have certain skills um, of retention of what you read? Do you have a photographic memory? Uh, how, how does your memory, what cognitive skills did you either know you have or discovered? I'd, I'd say that I'm academically average. I, I really okay. would. Um, maybe slightly above average, but I, I don't put any, I don't have any, there's no, there's no magic dust up there. Okay, so you, it's not that you have a photographic memory. Uh, there, there are a couple of things I would say. Yeah. One is um, I have a fairly logical uh, mind. I know that. I've always known that. I, I organize things well, and I see things. Um, I create. I, I don't. It's probably a bit of a fancy way to say it, but I create taxonomies in my my head as I'm as I'm listening to people talk. I, I'm organizing as people are talking. I, I'm very thoughtful in making sure that things, you know, seem right to me. And I think in reading, that's why I was attracted to the Hanahan and Weinberg. Right. Paper, because it was a taxonomy. It, it was the taxonomy. Exactly. It helped me visualize things. I'm very graphical in, in the way I visualize things. Michael uh, would tell you that I was always producing graphics and images and diagrams to try and illustrate how things worked uh, in my own simplistic ways. But I would say at the end of the day, what I conceived of, although um, new and important, um, wasn't particularly brilliant. It's more like um, there's this new framework and, and people are just getting their, people are impressed and, and, and happy to have this sort of organizing heuristic for seeing cancer biology. And I applied it to a couple of problems that needed uh, that kind of a heuristic. And I knew that, you know, if you've read uh, Thomas Q and uh, The Structure of Scientific yes, Revolutions, you know that change doesn't happen easily. And I knew enough about the scientific literature and various fights that I've seen in the scientific literature. The, the book, uh, the popular book called The War of the Soups and the Sparks, about the scientists who believe that uh, 
chemistry in the brain. Chemistry caused the brain to function the way it did, and and the scientists have believed that electricity caused the brain to uh-huh. function the way it did. And the, and the wars they had, academic wars over who was right, and it turns out they both were. But it took many many years of fighting before they came to understand each other's perspectives. Mm-hmm. Um, I realized that it was gonna it, that you know my my vision as I could see it was never going to change anything. And so I not only recruited those teams and those large teams of credible cancer biologists, toxicologists, environmental health specialists, et cetera, not just because it was the scale of the problem, but also because I believe that it was going to take a very large group um, to make a significant statement um, in order for you know this whole idea to have any kind of uh, credibility in the scientific community, because you know one lone voice uh, in the scientific literature doesn't doesn't have much of an impact. So it was our idea that we would bring teams together, but then try and get a consensus and build a position paper that illustrated the problem and the vision that we had around this problem using a very large number of scientists to do that. So, uh, you know, if you ask me what is it about me, um, I think my assessment was rather average. Um, the, I think the insight to use the framework for these purposes was quite useful. And I think the scientists really did the, the work here. But the end product... Um, in fact, was a, was a good representation of our initial vision. So, I mean, um, uh, my strengths, I think, in this project were to be able to get through the material. There's no doubt that getting through the cancer literature, uh, which was a very long endeavor, um, was not a trivial undertaking. And so <laughs> I do feel that I did something special there. Um, in fact, I run into people in the field who are specialists in one area who don't always appreciate other areas even as well as I do just because I had the luxury to read, you know, through those other areas at, at my whim. Well, I think, um, I, let me just say, because I'm, I'm really, as you know, I'm, I'm focused partly on the work and partly on understanding how you managed to pull it off. And I would say that, in honesty, that that another very powerful tool that you have, which is on full display right now, is a certain uh, a true humility, which is attractive to other people because it's not like, I mean, very often the people with with vision and audacity are also, you know, sort of narcissistic or ego focused people and and I think you're able to pull teams together precisely because you say look I'm just average in this field you know I'm nothing special but here's here's a job and here here's here, here's why it's logical and then there's a tremendous tenacity a tremendous stick-to-itiveness so it seems to me you know in my own inner as you you like uh you like typologies in my own inner typology, which is forming. There's sort of humility, audacity, vision, uh, stick-to-itiveness. Uh, you told me a story about uh, the Air Force, which you actually told at the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences conference, which I loved. Which was uh, <laughs> this was before you you failed out of the fighter 
fighter uh, pilot. Just thing. The jet training. The, yeah. the jet training. And I don't know whether this is why you failed out. But, <laughs> no. but anyway, would you tell that story? Because I think it's indicative of, of well, a certain aspect of your personality. Yeah, well, I don't know. It's out of context. But I, well, I, but I, was, I was creating yeah. a, a, an analogy to chemicals that di- are disruptive of yeah. key systems that yeah. aren't always uh, being used. Um, cells have, uh, as you would have picked up maybe from the hallmarks as I described them, cells have these defensive mechanisms that um, are like emergency systems. If mm-hmm. the cell's not functioning properly, right. it can self-destruct. Or right. if the cell's not functioning properly, it can stop making copies of itself before it makes too many copies of mm-hmm. itself, those kinds of things. And I was... Um, talking about systems on an aircraft which could be broken and you could fly with without having them working, but you wouldn't want to be flying without them having working. And uh, I had been in jet training and was quite interested in doing aerobatics. Uh, we had done aerobatics flying small planes, but we were doing solos in, in single-engine jet, which was quite uh, fast, you know, would do five or 600 miles an hour and I decided one afternoon when I was doing solo and I was supposed to be practicing some fairly simple maneuvers that I was going to do uh, half a loop, which is a pull-through. You uh, you get a very high altitude and you roll the plane upside down and then you pull on the stick and you do what is would be the back half of a loop. You start at the top and you come out at the bottom. And it seemed really simple and uh, the, the plane was highly maneuverable. You could do rolls in it easily. So I just went up to a high altitude and rolled it over and started to pull on the stick to come out. And I started barreling towards the ground at a very high speed. Um, I was watching the uh, altimeter drop rapidly and the speed go really high, like faster than the plane should go. And the wind was buffeting over the canopy at his making it very noisy in, in the cockpit. And I couldn't get the nose to come up. It was like I was going to go straight in the ground. And somewhere in the back of my mind, I remembered that we had speed brakes. You could actually flick a little tiny uh, button on the throttle. And I pulled the throttle back and I pulled the speed brakes and these big plate-sized um things come out into the airflow from the side of the fuselage of the aircraft and they bring the nose up and allow you to slow down quickly there it's like sticking your hand out the window of a car only it's uh, two giant metal plates that come out either side of the fuselage anyway this is an emergency system that doesn't get used very often and i had almost forgotten about it we hadn't we had just barely been introduced to it and we weren't even supposed to be using it uh but i realized i was in crisis Anyway, I was saying that, you know, had I read ahead a couple of chapters in the textbook, literally if I had read ahead a couple of chapters in the textbook, I would have learned that I was really supposed to start at a very slow speed at the top of this half loop, which would allow me to speed up as I was coming down and I wouldn't be going too fast right. at the bottom. Um, but yeah, I would say that I was, it was audacious in the sense that I... Well, the, it was I characterological, right? <laughs> and I, it was characterological. It, yeah, it was. Yeah, and, and, and that, that audacity and, of course, the fact that you were able to remember in crisis right. these speed, speed bumps <laughs> things, 
And yeah. so that's why we're talking today, because you were able to pull that out of your memory. Otherwise, <laughs> uh, we would not be having this conversation. Uh, I, yes, I guess yeah. that's true. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think you're, you've, you know, you've, you've, you've kind of got me quite well. I think, uh, my, there are some things that I have going for me that really helped. Um, I'm, you know, I think being at a college in a full-time position, uh, financially, you know, secure with my family and really, um, in some respects, all of those things made it quite easy for me to be audacious because I had nothing to lose. I mean, I took this project on because I felt it was important. And I realized that, you know, I had nothing on the line. There was no, uh, there were no career implications for getting this wrong. I mean, I could have been deeply embarrassed, but uh, had it all fallen apart. But I feel that I was prepared to take it on because I really, you know, had no constraints. That I, there, there was just nothing to prevent me from saying, um, uh, let's do this. And uh, I, I think every time I talked to a scientist who agreed and said, yes, this is exactly what she, we, we should be doing, I got, it was like fuel. Um, every time somebody said, this is the right idea, you know, and, and I got a lot of that very early, starting with Theo Colborn, and then almost every scientist that came onto the project said, this is exactly what we should be doing. And that, and that really fueled me in terms of having uh, the will to, to push it forward. And so it was, I think, the strength of the reputations of the people that were interested and wanted to get involved that gave me confidence that it was the right thing to do. One other uh question about a sort of uh, inner method. You mentioned that you create taxonomies in your head all the time and that Michael Gilbertson would say you, you create a lot of visuals. Some people, as you know, think in images and other people think in words. Uh, do you think in images? Um, I don't know if I think in images. Mm -hmm. I Things need to be logical for me and I know that sounds um, uh, simplistic, but I can tell you that even if I have a discussion with somebody who's not following uh, a path that I can to follow, if their thoughts are moving in different directions, I have really tr uh, I have trouble. And so when I'm reading something that's complex or complicated, I struggle myself to organize it in ways that help me understand. Um, I don't know if that's normal or if that's how other people are, but for me, it's really critical that I am able to sort of, you know, both understand the small bits, but also understand the context. Uh, somebody used to say, are you, a, uh, somebody asked me one time, are you a tree guy or a forest guy? Do you like to look at the trees and you're happy to do that? Or do you like to see the big picture of the, the forest? And I said, I don't think I'm either. I, I have to both understand the forest and then I'm happy to look at the trees, but I, I can't do one without the other. And I think it's that sort of need for me to understand the big picture that helps. It's a, I would say it's a strategic level of thinking that helped me put a lot of the work that I had read in context and then to see a big picture that I could then look at it and say, okay, from a big picture standpoint, this is where I think need, things need mm -hmm. to move. Uh, I'd like to turn back now to the work itself. And um, 
I, I want to focus on the broad-spectrum integrative design for cancer prevention and therapy. And for this reason, um, there is uh, the issue of carcinogenesis available to anybody who's interested. Uh, our colleague, Ken Cook, an environmental working group, and uh, his colleague, uh, Kurt Del Valle, uh, did a very nice uh, summary of uh, your work on the Environmental Working Group webpage. Uh, Getting to Know Cancer has a great summary of it. And uh, we did a, a webinar for the Collaborative on Health and Environment right. uh, with uh, Margaret Kripke, Chief uh, Scientific, Scientific Officer of the Cancer Prevention Research Institute of Texas, and with Kurt De La Valle, uh, the senior scientist from Environmental Working Group. Um, and uh, did Michael Gilbertson ever get on that call? I think he had trouble getting on. I can't remember. I'm not sure. Yeah. But in any case, um, we've talked about it enough now so that a listener could get a feeling yes. for your work on partial carcinogens. So the second project uh, in which the senior, uh, senior author is a friend and colleague of mine of longstanding uh, Keith Block from the Block uh, uh, Cancer Center in Evanston, Illinois, uh, is uh, extremely interesting to me as somebody who's worked with cancer patients for 30 years. So perhaps you could start by just giving us an overview of, um, of what that project is. Yeah, sure. Um, so if, if you look at the cancer literature and you uh, try to get a sense in a, in a big picture way um, as to why so many cancer therapies are so limited in what they can accomplish, um, you learn very quickly that the, the biggest problem with most therapies is that cancer has many, people have referred to them as escape routes or mechanisms of, of getting around therapies. And there's all kinds of metaphors used, but the point is, is that um, a lot of therapies are good at treating certain aspects of cancer, um, but ultimately in a lot of cancers there are different types of cells that are making copies of themselves, and so therefore defeating a large group of cells and making a tumor shrink, for example, may appear to be successful, but ultimately a year or two later uh, the cancer comes back, sometimes only a matter of months it comes back because there are subpopulations of cells that were, that were making copies of themselves that were perhaps quite small in number, but driven by entirely different mechanisms. And then the therapy didn't work on those cells. Those are the cells that proliferate and ultimately um, cause a patient to die. The, that, if you follow the literature, there's 30 years of frustration by doctors who have tried to use combinations of chemicals to get at all these different subpopulations of cells. It seems like uh, just a story that has no end. Every time you read a, a promising new study of a new therapy that is targets a particular type of cell, they'll they'll talk about you know patients uh, seem to get better, but then the, then suddenly the cancer comes back and, and that cancer coming back is largely attributed to subpopulations of cells that were not um, able to be affected by a particular therapy type. And so that's a standing problem that has never been resolved. Um, in my own reading of the cancer literature, I was 
quite interested in, um, I would call plant-based phytochemicals uh, or food-based chemicals because of two stories that were told to me when I was much younger and before I ever started on this project. Um, um, a man who lived in British Columbia who was a client of a good friend of mine had brain cancer. He had uh, glioblastoma. Uh, he had been sent home by his hospital. They said it was inoperable and that he was going to die. His wife, who was a nurse at the time, um, put him on a diet of grapes and grape juice based on her reading of uh, early literature around chemicals in grapes that appeared to have anti-cancer properties. This was maybe 15 or 20 years ago now. Um, and after three months of having nothing but grapes and grape juice, his tumors had all completely disappeared. Right. This is not unknown. The grape juice uh, uh, well, the, you know, therapies. The chemicals in grapes and their ability to act on certain mechanisms in certain cancers is uh, well studied now, and there's yeah. an incredible amount of literature there. Um, I guess my point is that in the field of integrative cancer therapies, one of the many, many strands uh, is, uh, is, is grape juice and grapes. So your, right. your nurse friend not was not obviously alone. obviously advocating this for any right, of cancer, course. but yeah. I'm saying this was this an, was anecdotal, an, story an anecdotal story of something story. that happened. Right. Uh, I know it to be truthful right. because I know the person who told me the story who had right. firsthand information. Right. Um, and I was fascinated. So I was reading widely on chemicals from... There was a, and there was a similar example about a liver cancer and other kinds of chemicals from teas and plant extracts. And what did the person with liver cancer do? Well, I was in the back uh, of an airplane talking to a woman and, and saying I was headed to San, uh, San Diego and asked her if she'd ever been there. And she told me she worked at a cancer hospital in Canada or, or a hospital that has a large cancer center and that her husband had primary liver cancer that was inoperable. And... Uh, Given no chance of uh, survival, she decided to take him to clinics in Mexico, and she had been in San Diego on the way. Um, I was fascinated by the story because uh, I couldn't imagine that we were sending people from fine cancer hospitals in Canada to Mexico. Well, we, we weren't sending them, but she had gone there. And his uh, tumor had com been completely uh, resolved. Do you know uh, which Tijuana um, clinical one? And uh -huh. it was years ago, okay. and, I, and I don't even know exactly what he took. It was yeah. sort of something that was told to me at a time when I really wasn't even interested in cancer. It was just a, a story we shared on, in, the, in the back of an airplane that was one of those little uh, cigar tube-sized uh, airplanes with one seat on each side of the aisle, <laughs> uh, commuter uh, jet between uh, two locations. Anyway... Um, so I wish I had more information there. I'm just saying that that really had me, my interest. And as I was reading the cancer literature, I was reading all these research reports of chemicals that had been trialed in vitro, in test tube uh, scenarios, and in vivo, usually in mice, uh, and some limited trials in people, and how many of the known targets in cancer biology are able to be acted on by many of these chemicals in ways that are remarkably similar to the drugs that we're developing, uh, identical in some instances, and that there was no money to move this to clinical work because there's no um, 
patentability, and therefore, often if something was identified that had uh, promise, uh, they would uh, universities would get chemists to develop analogs, close replicas of the chemicals with slight twists that would be patentable, and then they would pursue you know, analogs of these chemicals rather than the original chemicals. But what was remarkable in all of this research was a theme that I saw from my reading of it was that a lot of these chemicals had almost no toxicity or very um, broad therapeutic index, uh, very safe. Um, this isn't ex uh, exclusive to plants and, and uh, chemicals in plants and foods, but it was certainly a common thread that I saw. And it, and it doesn't mean that there aren't chemicals in plants and foods that aren't don't have toxicity levels. I'm just saying I saw a lot of studies where the authors had noted that not only did this particular chemical had favorable properties, but it had very little toxicity that they could see at very high doses. You're listening to a conversation with Leroy Lowe and Michael Lerner. Well, if you go back now to the problem of this heterogeneity in cancer, the various subpopulations of cells that are all operating on different mechanisms that need to be treated, and the problem in the clinic of using combinations of existing therapies. Most combinations of existing therapies were limited to two or three chemicals because they all work at the brink of toxicity. We choose these uh, chemicals that we've developed for cancer, we dose them at levels that are right at the at the brink of toxicity, and if you try and use two or three of them together, the the therapies themselves are so toxic that you know you can the combinations of them can cause death of, the, of a patient. So clinicians had been frustrated by this ability inability to deal with all these subpopulations of cells using different mechanisms, and the therapies that they were using were also highly toxic themselves that they were quite limited in how many of them they could combine. And so we conceived of a project where we would look at all the hallmarks of cancer, a team in each area. Um, we would prioritize the mechanisms in each area that were deemed to be most important for a stopping of cancer. And we would ask each team to nominate and identify in the literature chemicals that were had low toxicity or very little toxicity to no toxicity that were safe, um, preferably not uh, patented, something that could uh, help us deal with the high price, uh, escalating price of cancer drugs, and that could be potentially part of a larger combination of chemistry that could be used to treat cancers in such a manner that we would have tools to deal with advanced cancers or the problem of relapse where these various subpopulations of cells are able to succeed because we just don't have enough chemistry aimed at the right mechanisms to, to, to anticipate the diversity that might exist in any given cancer type. And so that was the project. The teams identified priority mechanisms. They identified uh, chemicals they felt had that kind of potential. Many of them were from plants and foods, uh, but not exclusively and uh, chemicals that um, many of, uh, most of which didn't have, uh, that weren't patentable necessarily. So this is something that could be pursued by, in particular countries that were struggling with the high price of cancer drugs, but also would make it a reasonable uh, complementary approach to existing therapies. So 
now we would be looking potentially at treating a cancer with a conventional therapy, but also putting with it this sort of combination approach or broad spectrum approach aimed at a broad spectrum of targets to help us deal with the potential for relapse and all these subpopulations of cells that are often missed with the kinds of therapies that have been developed in the last decade. Uh, In the capstone paper, which I've read, uh, by the way, has the the journal... uh, that is going to summarize all this actually been published yet. Today is October 7, 2015. Um, we have a publication date, I believe, tentative right now of November 18th. We're currently um, reviewing galley proofs of the final um, article, so it will be uh, forthcoming in, a, in just a few weeks. And the journal is? Uh, seminars in Cancer Biology, which uh, in academic terms it has an impact factor of nine point something. So it's a very high impact journal and will have a broad reach and should have a good impact in the field. My, my memory is that the carcinogenesis had a similar impact factor. Is that uh, I think carcinogenesis is uh, five something. Uh-huh, okay. Yeah. So uh, to my mind, as, as uh, let me just give a little background to listeners who don't know me. I've, I've spent 30 years looking at integrative cancer therapies. I wrote a book called Choices in Healing, Integrating the Best of Conventional and Complementary Approaches to Cancer for MIT Press. And I was the principal consultant for the Office of Technology Assessment for its report called Unconventional Cancer Treatments, uh, and also served uh, the American Cancer Society on its advisory board, specifically with respect to helping them move from the view that all integrative therapies were quackery to a more nuanced view of the possible contributions. So this has been, for the last 30 years of my life, a field of tremendous interest. And um, so, again, just as I've worked in environmental health, you have picked you know, two of the three or four fields that really matter to me and made really significant contributions in both. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the capstone, uh, paper, uh, uh, essentially outlines, um, the approach that you've just described, but one of the many things it talks about is the obstacles for the regulatory constraints for doing this research. So you write, for example... The U.S. has the most challenging regulations for drug approvals and so on, um, but the de- designation of botanical drugs may offer opportunities to broader-spectrum agents. And then you talk about Canadian regulations and Chinese regulations and Japanese regulations. But the point is it's not a trivial matter to figure out where you can do rigorous trials. Yeah, I think um, I'm not sure of the question you're asking, but I'm well. The, the question I'm at, I certainly would agree with you. The the um, issue that we're facing is that historically, um, good science, if I could put quotes around good science, right. good science would dictate that if you're going to run an experiment, you understand the variables, and so. In uh, a perfect world, if you were going to test a chemical, you'd want to test it by itself. And 
um, you would want to uh, limit any other variable that you couldn't control so that you understood exactly the influence of those other things and you knew exactly what was doing what. And, of course, uh, the National Cancer Institute tested many, many chemicals for a particular type of action, uh, plant-based chemicals, and, you know, discarded many of them and said, you know, no, that chemical doesn't do this type of thing, and therefore we're not interested in it. And yet, as the biology of cancer has unfolded, we've got a much more nuanced understanding of the various aspects of cancer biology, and, and it would almost be worth going back and look at all those things we discarded uh, and said there's no interest in these and check them again based on our better, you know, a more advanced understanding of the biology and the various ways in which these things might be interesting. But the point, I guess, is that the idea of testing a mixture is sort of uh, antithetical to the to the notion that you're going to understand every single variable and exactly what's going on. Um, if you put 50 things together and you try them uh, and it doesn't work or it does work, you don't really know what was causing what. But remarkably, you see, now that we understand the disease, um, it, Trying to treat cancer is a is a an experiment where you don't understand the variables anyway, because in most cancers there might be some group of cells that you could uh, perhaps biopsy and assess, and you could say, okay, we understand from looking at the DNA in this particular cell that we understand this is the mechanism that is most important. And while that biopsy may tell you something about the cells that you've tested, it may not tell you lots about the various subpopulations, minority subpopulations of cells that are surrounding that area that you haven't tested. And ultimately, you can treat for what you've tested for, but you may be missing other things that are very important. So the heterogeneity in a given person's cancer can be so complex that you don't know what you should be treating. Yeah, you might know some of what you should be treating, but you might not know all. So the the idea that we're going to take a single chemical and test it can only really tell us whether it's effective at doing what we thought it was good at. It can't tell us whether or not it's good at doing the other things that are in that cancer that have been not been well described. And therefore, this idea that we're going to only test one chemical at a time when we test for a chemical's efficacy against cancer goes completely against what the biology of cancer would tell us we need. The biology of cancer tells us we need as many um, possible um, roads to immortalization, cellular, immortal, cellular immortalization, closed as possible. And we know the machinery that's involved, and we have chemicals for all those roads, if I could use that metaphor. Um, so mixing them makes perfect sense. But I would say that the way we approach this problem from decades ago has left a legacy of bureaucracy that creates limits on what can get approved. I think everybody in writing this paper, everybody who was involved recognized that those barriers existed. And our goal was to lay the problem out clearly so that we could sort of say, 
okay, we know the problem exists in terms of how we'll accept mixtures to be tested, but let's explain the biology so well and so clearly and the nature of the problem so well in a holistic fashion and lay out the logic of why we would want to pursue a broad spectrum of targets simultaneously. And if we make that case in the science, in a high-impact journal with a large group of scientists saying this is what we need, maybe we can get a break in the way that uh, these various boards approve things to be tested. And the next time somebody puts in a grant application and says, I want to test this combination of 30 things, they don't have to make that argument in their grant application. They can say, here's a high-impact journal with 180 authors, and they've made the case as to why this is the approach that needs to be taken, and this is why I want approval to do this research in this way. And I think that, you know, our goal was to say, if we can't, if we can't deal with the bureaucracy one at grant application at a time, let's get it in the literature carved in peer-reviewed stone so that um, when that kind of a grant application is made, the support is there to show the rationale as to why this makes most sense. In the National Institutes of Environmental Health Sciences uh, workshop on your work on uh, partial carcinogens, uh, toward the end of the workshop, uh, you were asked, you know, what you were going to do next on this. And, and basically, as I understood you, you you said, look, we've, we've done what we set out to do on partial carcinogens, and now it's up to the field. Um, if that is a correct sort of memory, my question would be, um, do you feel the same way about uh, this approach to uh, cancer treatment? I do, and, um, I, you know, I... I'm a mixed emotions when I describe that that's where I'm at. But my feeling is that um, if the next 10 years involves individual grantees or prospective grantees, people that are trying to get funding to do research, battling against existing bureaucracy and people trying to make their way in a system that is not designed to accommodate the science, um, I'm not really well positioned um, or well equipped even to to fight that battle, and I don't want to be the person that fights that battle. It's just not in me um, to take that on. I have an interest in getting uh, granting agencies, um, National Cancer Institute in the United States or a similar agency in Canada, um, through the various. Um, boards of scientists that make decisions around where funding will be directed and how it will be directed. I have a, a personal interest in having them understand the problem uh, through this lens. And I feel that, you know, putting this article in the peer-reviewed literature in a high-impact journal is the groundwork that needed to be done to, to make that more broadly understood. And I think... Um, you know, scientists are very good if if they see something and it resonates with them. Uh, they will cite that work and they will uh, cite it re frequently. And citations count um, if a journal is being, if a particular article is being recognized by a lot of researchers as the way forward. Uh, people's uh, repetition of pointing at that as a benchmark and saying that's important and that's why I think we need to be moving in this direction. And those voices will come. 
um, slowly, perhaps initially, but hopefully, I would think that you know once the field moves and recognizes there's a ground shift of change in this direction, then all those other obstacles will you know solve themselves. I I just don't think that's a something that one person can take on. Um, I think of Theo Colborn's tireless effort on endocrine disruption, which took a, you know a couple of decades. Um, she really did wear that mantle and and focused on advancing everybody's understanding of endocrine disruptors and how low dose chemistry in the environment could impact uh, biology, uh, human biology, and and animal biology. But I think that. The field needs time to accept and adopt and change, and I don't think that you know one person's efforts will be as pivotal in at this stage as it will be this sort of recognition by the field that that's where things need to go. So it's just my personal belief that this isn't the right time for uh, you know, a nonprofit with no funding uh, to push hard <laughs> against a huge uh, edifice. I think that um, there will be some uh, formal recognition needed in the field after our statement has been made by other scientists to weigh in and say, yes, this makes great sense to us. And I think that will generate its own evolution toward in this direction. And we're going to see a real change happen, but it will be the the sort of result of the scientists all being on board because, frankly, it's that same group of scientists who sit on all these committees that make decisions about what kind of research they're going to allow. You know, uh, sometimes progress in uh, medicine is made uh, by the scientific community following its rules, but there are other times in which uh, patients who uh, can't wait have either tried things themselves or banded together and uh, explored things themselves. There are quite a few examples where important contributions to progress in medicine have been made either by patients or clinicians who were courageous enough to work with patients uh, to make these changes. In the history of medicine, uh, you know, it's reasonably well known. And I'm wondering whether when uh, this... Um, issue uh, of, uh, that's, that has these papers and it comes out, whether clinicians and patients will be able to look at the list of studies that were cited and say to themselves, uh, if you were making a list of the 10 uh, or 20, some number, the 10 or 20 most promising mixtures for a set of cancers where chemotherapy and radiation either are not, and surgery either are not immediately needed, or you know either it's a wait and watch situation like early phase prostate cancer with a gl low Gleason index, for example, or you know very early phase breast cancer where they're trying to you know relabel it so that it's no longer considered cancer and are rethinking whether prophylactic mastectomies are a good idea. So there are a range of cancers where wait and watch is, uh, is prudent. Uh, and if, um, if patients and clinicians were able to identify uh, mixtures that made sense, 
then there are now websites where uh, these cases can be aggregated. And in fact, best case analysis is part of what came out of the Office of Technology Assessment Study that I participated in and is, uh, continues to be part of what the, uh, you know, the, uh, the Alternative Cancer Assessment uh, Group uh, in the United States offers. So I'm just wondering whether there's a kind of a do-it-yourself aspect of this that might emerge uh, and therefore encourage uh, the kind of uh, clinical trials we'd like to see. Um, well, there's a few things there. So certainly I couldn't agree more that um, patients and advocates have a role to play. And certainly, uh, you know, if you look at the wave of demand that circled the globe for uh, liberation therapy and multiple sclerosis, um, it's a, a perfect example of patients forcing um, the foundations and charities that collected their money to spend it on research that was what they wanted. Now, that, I, I give that example, but at the same time, the clinical trials that followed the money that was spent from the foundations and charities at the patient's demands didn't actually validate the original research that had been seen as promising. And so, you know, some would argue that's a good reason for patients not to be driving the research agenda. Um, but at the same time, uh, I would I think it's still illustrative of um, a situation where patients and advocates can influence uh, bodies that have funding. And in this case, I think it's a perfect example of how patient influence or advocate influence could impact whether or not broad-spectrum therapeutics are pursued uh, with money that has been gathered from, you know, various cancer societies that collect money on behalf of patient populations. And I think that's, there's definitely a role to play for people to get active and to be uh, active in promoting or pursuing this agenda if they feel that there is bureaucracy that's impeding its progress. That, that's the first thing for sure. To your second point, and that's really about um, whether or not there is a way to sort of come up with some sort of priority list of mixtures or combinations that therapeutically could be interesting, you know, that's a very slippery slope because if some private clinic says, well, we're going to do these five things, um, even though the trials haven't been done to show this will work against these particular cancers because we think it's interesting, um, who's to say that's not okay? Um, uh, of course, there are laws against what you can say, but, you know, they may do them anyway. And, and who am I to say whether they should do them? The challenge, of course, is that I really believe that the science is such that we'd be, we would be uh, remiss if we didn't take this on at the kind of scale it deserves. I, I hear you in the sense that if the bureaucracy is not prepared to move, it shouldn't, you know, couldn't we, there be a grassroots movement to advance it. But I feel that the whole field of integrative cancer therapy has really been a marginalized enterprise. Despite its increasing adoption in mainstream clinics, there are many mainstream clinics that really see integrative medicine as all the kinds of supplementary things you might do that don't interfere with actually treating the cancer biology, but how, what kinds of things could we do to help the patient? 
that are other aspects of their well-being, but not necessarily the cancer itself. Uh, it's sort of like we'll have an integrative cancer therapy department, but we won't treat the cancer with any of that stuff. That's just going to be to deal with nausea or to deal with inflammation or we'll deal with things that we feel are peripheral. Uh, mind you, inf- inflammation can be quite central, but my point, I guess, is that it has been a marginalized activity, and yet I would argue that it really, this is a concept, broad-spectrum treatment, that should be in the main. And I think that, you know, what is needed at this stage is a push with substantial amount of funding, the same kind of funding that we would give any major mainstream therapy that was needed. Of course, one of the challenges is that major mainstream therapies that are pursued now, uh, the investment tends to come from drug companies. And uh, there doesn't seem to be uh, a model here for pharmaceutical companies. I I think that, you know, most pharmaceutical companies uh, with the right patent lawyers could develop uh, proprietary broad-spectrum uh, treatments that involved a lot of constituents that were perhaps not patentable, but together and with certain unique constituents, they could find a patented way to go here. But the industry is not broken and they're not in need of any new models for therapy because as far as they're concerned, you know, the, it's a very uh, lucrative business and they've got a business model that works. So I'm not convinced that this is going to happen without some sort of uh, government intervention. It was our belief when we put this project together that if we laid all the pieces out, that there would be some countries where regulations were less restrictive, where governments certainly could not afford uh, current therapies at $100,000 a patient a year or whatever. Some of the new therapies are excessively expensive that there would be countries that would have better regulations, better regulatory environment that might create under their own national labs uh, sort of an initiative to demonstrate how this might work and put it through all the sorts of hoops that we would see it go through. And there was a recognition those countries might not be, uh, you know, in North America, that that it might not be Canada, the United States, or even Europe that leads this, that there might be other nations where they are in desperate need of improved therapies that they would consider pursuing this. Now, I think that the science that we did warrants uh, attention and will, in fact, draw a lot of interest in North America. And I feel that there's no reason that we shouldn't be on the cutting edge. Um, But I'm also open to the possibility that through uh, bureaucracy and uh, lack of uh, nimbleness on the part of our research agencies, that it may be a stretch. And then that brings me back to your question about clinics. Does that mean that the clinics have a role to play? Well, you know, that's the kind of work that Keith Block and his team have been doing for years, and there's other clinics that are have, have looked at, you know, uh, we're going to do whatever the patient needs, and the science is there to suggest that multiple targets is, are important, and therefore we're going to reach multiple targets one way or another, and they do that through a variety of means, and I think that's certainly something that can be done uh, in a much greater way than is currently being done now. And that could happen sort of uh, independent of whatever happens in the main. Yeah, in a sane world, the drug companies would do their research 
and the National Cancer Institute or the American Cancer Society, which collects money from the public, would do this broad spectrum work and make these therapies available without, uh, uh, you know, copyright uh, as inexpensively as possible, uh, so that there was a, a virtuous circle that uh, inclined to drive the cost of pharmaceuticals down as it made these broad spectrum uh, 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 therapies widely available. So, but we're dealing with a phenomenon of regulatory capture where uh, the government agencies are uh, closely connected to the pharmaceutical uh, firms, and so are the large uh, nonprofit cancer organizations. So my, my, the, the hope I share with you that your work will get the level of leverage we'd like to see and that we'll get the level of resources we'd like to see, that's a wonderful hope. But when I think about so many fields whether it's the development of hospice or the development of more humane approaches to childbirth or whether it's the work that Dean Ornish did uh, with um, heart disease on reversing heart disease with uh, diet stress reduction and so on, which is very well demonstrated now and actually reimbursed now. Uh, or I think of the work Dean and others have done in demonstrating that the same approach uh, you know, reduces progression of prostate cancer and, and sometimes, uh, you know, completely stabilizes it. So we could both cite numerous examples in history and in contemporary experience where individual clinicians uh, have started something that works its way into the mainstream, whether it's childbirth or hospice or you know, uh, these approaches to prostate cancer and heart disease and so forth. So there are, there are the examples, I think, of places uh, where if you don't get the leverage that we both hope you get, uh, perhaps this work can move forward because it's too important uh, not to move forward. I agree, yeah. yeah. Well, Leroy Lowe, thank you so much for this time and for your extraordinary work, both on partial carcinogens and on uh, safer and inexpensive uh, uh, comprehensive approaches to uh, cancer therapy. I, I believe you've made an extraordinary contribution, and I wanted to have this conversation because it's not only what you put in the literature, but who you are that has made this possible. Oh, thank you, Michael. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a conversation with Leroy Lowe and Michael Lerner. Thank you for joining us at the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Chiani. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook.